Matter of fact, the whole thing was looking really good. He was uh, doing the right thing, going straight ahead, he had a nice paddock off to the left. I was pretty comfortable. And then he said, oh, I'm 500 feet, I'll turn back. So I thought to myself, well, we'll have words about this. But in the meantime, I looked over my shoulder to see where the airstrip was, and the next thing I was upside down. The guy flip-rolled it, inverted, and uh, we were actually only 300 feet above the ground. He looked at the altimeter and said, right, I don't think uh, so we, we went into the trees. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you for joining us for another incredible soaring journey here on the podcast. The island of Tasmania can be found south of Australia, separated by a 240-kilometer stretch of water called the Bass Strait. Now, we know Australia has many soaring clubs throughout the country, and we, of course, have spoke to some of those pilots here on the podcast. But I was curious if Tasmania had any active soaring clubs. We found one. In fact, it's the only one on the island. And there we found our new friend and fellow aviator, Robert Kennedy. Robert got the aviation bug from his father, who was a World War II pilot. As a young boy, he enjoyed flying RC aircraft, but later he discovered sailplanes. Robert has been soaring for nearly 50 years. He started his gliding training flying the K-13, then later the LaBelle. He said he also did lots of towing because, hey, tow pilots fly for free. Robert has enjoyed many different types of aviation jobs throughout his life. He spent 10 years of it as an air traffic controller. Working in the morning allowed for flying time in the afternoon. He spent some of his time as a civil aviation inspector, ran a helicopter school, and has flown everything from light sport aircraft, warbirds, to 737s, and many more. He has so many stories to share with us, and you heard a sample of those on the intro, but wait till you hear the rest of his stories. Not many people know where Tasmania is, but if you look at the map, it's a small island to the far south of the main continent, often left off global maps. (laughs) Uh, And we, we were pretty much a grassroots small club. We're right in the middle of the island, but it's not too far in any direction to the water. And so we're very limited by size. Uh, We're in the Southern Ocean, so we have regular passing fronts almost daily. We've got limitations of terrain. Much of Tasmania is pretty rugged and uninhabited. We fly in a valley about midway between the main towns of Launceston and and Hobart. Uh, We fly off a grass strip and we're pretty basic. We're what you might call, you know, grassroots flying. Uh, It's not really possible to do much uh, cross-country here. So it tends to be basically a a local soaring club. Okay. It's got a long history. It's been around, the club's been around for 40 plus years. Uh, Has had various periods of activity and lack of activity. I've only been associated with the club for about three years. Uh, I moved to this area and uh, found that there was a riding club 20 minutes down the road, so I thought I'd better go and have a look and one thing thing or another, I've got involved. Uh, Yeah, so uh, the weather here is probably uh, our most biggest challenge because, as I said, we have really nice days. Um, Last week I had um, the Vario off the clock. I looked at my average the other day and I got average 860 foot per minute. Oh, wow. Nice. Climbing to 7,000 feet above sea level, which is about 6,000 above ground level. So there are some really nice days, but... What we can do with those days is limited very much by terrain, airspace, and, and other factors. Yeah, we can squeeze in maybe two hundred triangle or a, or a rectangle or cat's cradle or something like that. But okay. because of the variable weather, the inconsistency of weather, and a whole bunch of other facts and factors, there's not much cross country here. So we're really a basic 
flying outfit and a lot of our members or some of our members will tend to go to the mainland of Australia uh, to get good soaring. I've done that myself. I share in a glass flugel mosquito and um, last year I went across to uh, New South Wales and there you've got open country. You can do 1,000 k's if you want to, good thermals for 10,000 feet and that sort of thing. So. Uh, if we want to get some good soaring, we pretty much have to go to the mainland. What does it take to go to the mainland? Yeah. Oh, now, that is a problem because there's a body of water called the Bass Strait between us and the mainland, and the only way you're getting across there uh, is is on a, a ship, a ferry, and it costs me uh, to take my glider over about $1,100 Australian, about 800 US each way. Wow. Yeah, so it's a... not really a very. Uh, I had to take it over uh, last year for maintenance, uh, lacking maintenance facilities here in the state as well, unfortunately. So when you've got any major maintenance, I've got to take it across. So I took the opportunity of going flying on the mainland there. So, you know, we're a small club, um, but, you know, uh, and of course a small population as well. Our, our whole state here probably has only about. I think about 500,000 spread over a fairly wide area. Yeah. Uh, so we're not near a very big uh, population source and, and we're the only club in, in the state. Um, so we do what we can as best we can um, with about 35 members, I guess, around about seven or eight aircraft, uh, a Pawnee. Uh, we've had some difficulties in um, recent years. Uh, the club used to operate about 10 k's away on a farmer's uh, field. It had good support from the uh, the owner, but the owners now have got a bit old and the boys, the young fellas have taken over and decided they want to farm the land. So in 2018, the club was told we had to move and so uh, had to um, find another airstrip and uh, relocate a hangar from scratch, pull it to pieces, put it up again, establish a, a stripper. And a lot of work, uh, of course, suffered in membership uh, over that period of time. And then, of course, having moved, we had COVID, and that set us back a bit. And uh, we had some tug engine uh, problems, which also set us back financially. But we're in a recovery mode. Now we've re-established, got two hangars, and yeah, things are going uh, pretty pretty well at the moment. Man, you literally had to pick up everything and move. Pick that, up everything and start again, which is pretty tough, you know, with voluntary yeah. organisation. You've got lots of stuff to do. This is Most of this is before my time. I've only been with the club about three years. My background is um, next year I'll be my 50th year of since I started flying. Uh, I started back in 1974 in, in Queensland. And oh, okay. uh, my father was a World War II, um, gen, what they call general duties pilot, you know, light uh, models, small twins, uh, liaison, air sea rescue, air, air ambulance, that sort of flying. So I had a background in flying from a young, young, young person, model aeroplanes, that sort of thing. But... Um, when I went to school, my father said, well, you know, don't be a pilot. You're doing well at school, go to university. So I did engineering. But I always wanted to fly. And um, uh, eventually one day I went to the gliding club and that's history now. I've been doing it now for close to 50 years. That club was up in uh, Queensland. still a very big and viable club. And uh, in, that, in those days, in the 70s, um, very, very, very active. I did most of my gliding in those days. I got a power pilot's license to fly the tug and um, was an instructor. I've done Gold Sea and Diamond, Diamond Height and Distance and all that sort of stuff. Most of my flying has been part-time. I, I ended up as a professional pilot, but started gliding. I found out that the tug pilot didn't have to pay. Right. <laughs> That's for me. Yeah, <laughs> and, so, and so I managed to, uh, by various means, because um, I had no money, um, get a uh, 
what we call in those days a restricted pilot license. That is, I had a local flying privileges only, no navigation, but that was enough to fly the target. At 35 hours in my logbook, I was telling gliders. Now, what did you start out flying? Uh, I started out on a Cetabria, eight GCBC, 150 horsepower flapped uh, Cetabria two-seater, and then the club also had a, um, a 150 horsepower Pawnee. And I'm back flying the Pawnee again. So I started in 1974, and after nearly 50 years, I'm back to where I started from, flying Pawnee and gliding. It, uh, so it's an interesting sort of uh, circle, if you like. What did you spend most of your time in the glider? What type of glider? Well, in those days, in those days, uh, in the 70s, the, the glass aircraft were really just coming in. So things like uh, the Lavelle 201B, uh, standard Lavelle, um, standard Cirrus, uh, and of course, learn to fly on a K13. Uh, in the States, I don't know how many of these gliders are, are common, but they're very common in Europe and Australia. So an ASK13 was the standard training, a fabric and fabric steel tube, uh, wooden spar type of glider. Uh, still, still flying today in many places. Uh, so most of my flying, pretty all my flying is done on standard class, including, you know, Diamond, gold, that sort of thing, diamond distance. But in that area, um, the conditions are pretty good. You, you can do long distances in lots of Australia. Lots of Australia is very open uh, with very good gliding conditions. A lot of people come to Australia just for the just for the gliding. Unfortunately, where we are is not quite so good. But uh, the rest of Australia is very good. What's the terrain there in Tasmania? Is it just you have yeah, some hills? Yeah, we're in a valley, and then to the to the west of us, I've got a plateau of, uh, of unlandable territory, hills, lakes, uh, uh, timber, all that sort of thing. And to the east of us, similar. So we're in a bit of a valley, and and in the valley itself, it's it's very much um, agricultural, typically with uh, circular. Uh, irrigation um, apparatus, uh, which means you know landing uh, uh, straight ahead is not very uh, uh, useful. Uh, lots of small paddocks, lots of undulating stuff. So, what I've done recently is I've um, managed to locate as many possible agricultural strips, private strips, and those sorts of things. So, that if we do have to outland, we can avoid having to pick. A uh, select a paddock from the air, which can be unreliable, difficult, uh, poor surface, things like that. Whereas, of course, as I said, if I go to the mainland, uh, quite the opposite. You find that you go in large areas of very big open square paddocks. You can land a seven point seven in some of those paddocks, but uh, down where we are, it's a little more challenging, and you have to be much more more careful. Have you had some land downs? Uh, down here, I haven't. Um, in my previous experience, yes, I've done quite a few outlandings uh, in in in, uh, in Queensland, New South Wales, and places like that. Interesting wildlife, of course, in, in Australia, but also uh, Tasmania. They have some very unique wildlife not found anywhere else in the world. Is that right? There, there is. You might have heard, uh, you see in cartoons, uh, American cartoons, with the Tasmanian devil. Right, it's not quite as what it looks like in the cartoons, but they're they're, they're quite <laughs> interesting down here, uh, and of course in the rest of Australia, you know, the usual thing, kangaroos are very common, um, common down here too. Um, you know, driving driving is a hazard because these animals hop out in front of you, and so you've always got to be got to be careful. You know, Tasmania is a, a you know a, a sort of an English kind of climate. It's fairly way south as uh, as UK is north, but uh, it gets cool in the in the uh, winter. But uh, we do fly three sixty five days a year, so so even though okay. the weather conditions may not be uh, very good soaring conditions, uh, we tend to train and fly all year round. But some some good training days, right? Do you do a yeah, lot of that? Well, that's right. You know, we're pretty pretty much you know, a local or training club and. That's what we do most. We're very short, though, of um, experienced people. Uh, I think that uh, worldwide, the gliding fraternity suffers from uh, 
a lack of new blood. Um, we are starting to get some younger people in, but our instructors and tug pilots tend to be at the uh, older end of the spectrum. And it seems difficult to uh, encourage new people to uh, start. Uh, to get interested. There's too many other things out there to uh, attract their attention, perhaps. Yeah. We do have a few younger people coming along now, so I'm hopeful that we can generate a new uh, a new cadre of people who will take over from the older members and become instructors and tug pilots and continue the work. Some of us are approaching our use-by date. I don't know if you were happy. Yes, yeah, that. yeah, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> you, go to, yeah you go to the supermarket, you got a label there saying, you know, best before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Laura, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. So, Bob, you've done a lot of soaring, um, obviously, over the years. Well, yes and no. I've done a fair bit of soaring. I've done a lot of flying. One thing led to another, and um, although I started out just gliding, um, having got a powered pilot's license and flying the tug, I, at the time I was a, a civil engineer and I used to go to the what you would call the outback on various projects, so difficult to get to. So I thought, well, if I did my navigation training, uh, I could fly myself. And I did that for quite a few years. So I got quite a lot of experience flying around as a private pilot to um, construction projects in the outback. The other thing that um, I did is that bit by bit, I did things like a commercial license, and a uh, powered instructor rating, all of that done weekends and part-time with no real prospect of... Um, entering the uh, industry. I just did it for personal reasons. And uh, at the time, I had a wife and three children, mortgage and all those sort of things. So going into flying as a profession was just not viable financially. But uh, So I, I did a stint of about 10 years as an air traffic controller. And uh, throughout that period, I, I kept flying part-time. So I'd be working in the tower in the morning and flying in the afternoon. So after quite a few years, my, I did actually go into full-time commercial flying after that. And my first full-time job as a commercial pilot was manager and chief instructor. Oh, <laughs> all, wow. All, all of the other ratings all up the, up the food chain had been done um, part-time. I've basically never done a full-time training course of any flying course in my whole career. It's all, always been um, part-time weekends and, and uh, you know, graft and corruption or ways and means of getting flying. But, uh, yeah, so eventually I did, um, I, I left air traffic and um, I was actually running a helicopter school for quite some years. Well, the biggest helicopter school in the, in the Southern Hemisphere it turned out to be. Oh, wow. I had a very bad crash, though. Well, after the after that uh, helicopter school, I was, there was a helicopter school which did both fixed wing training, helicopter training. You started out with a private pilot license on a Cessna 172 and then converted to a helicopter. It was a cheaper way to achieve a commercial helicopter pilot's license. So I was running the school and doubling up as the chief instructor for the fixed wing side. But after that, uh, a friend and colleague of mine and I joined forces and we ran a small flying school for some years, did a lot of flying training. But in November of 99, I was doing a check ride. I was a, what you would call a, I think, a designated pilot examiner. Is that what you call them in the States? Yep, yep, that's right. Proved test officer here in Australia. 
and I was uh, doing a, a, a private pilot's testing on an RV6, and uh, we landed at a very remote, well, it wasn't even an airstrip, a remote, um, what we would call a paddock field, in your, in your language, uh, which uh, which I knew of. And uh, I used to do this because I'd like to see a private pilot being able to land, uh, if you like, off-field, uh, you know, I felt that a private pilot would be invited by his friend to come pig shooting somewhere on a property and everybody can land at a, a, a bitumen sealed airstrip in, in town, but uh, what happens when they go to the bush and uh, land on something which is unfamiliar? So I, I took this guy as part of his test to a um, an unprepared field, <clears throat> which I knew, and we, we talked about the arrival and so forth, and I briefed the guy to... Uh, do what we would call a short field takeoff, a maximum performance takeoff. And then I also briefed him that uh, after a sufficient height that we will simulate an engine failure. We did a lap and we got to um, a safe height and I called for an engine failure. And uh, I didn't know the chap. He, this was the first time I'd met him. Uh, I hadn't trained him. Uh, anyway, he, uh, he said, uh, oh, as a matter of fact, the whole thing was looking really good. He was uh, doing the right thing, going straight ahead. He had a nice paddock off to the left. I was pretty comfortable. And then he said, oh, I'm 500 feet. I'll turn back. Well, in the role of an examiner, you don't enter into the discussion in the cockpit. You wait till you get back on the ground. And uh, so I thought to myself, well, we'll have words about this. Um, but in the meantime, I looked over my shoulder to see where the airstrip was, and the next thing I was upside down. Uh, the, oh. the guy flick-rolled it, uh, inverted, and mm. uh, we were actually only 300 feet above the ground. He looked at the altimeter and said 500. But uh, uh. Anyway, I have it uh, on good authority that 300 feet is insufficient height to recover from a spin, so we, we went into the trees. Mm. Um, I managed to get the thing wings level out of the spin, so we weren't rotating, but, but I was just recovering. But not enough height to recover the dive, so I went into more, luckily, not very heavy timber. Had it been an open paddock, we would have been killed outright. But the luck was that I went through not very heavy uh, bush, and the aircraft disintegrated. <laughs> and mm. what was left of it, including the cockpit, ended up upside down, and uh, we survived, as wow. as ev evidence would suggest. So that that set me back a bit. Well, I had some serious injuries, but um, no real after effects. But uh, at that stage, I decided, well, general aviation, as we call it in Australia, maybe I've had enough of that, and. Um, I looked at going into, I was 53 at the time, and uh, I looked at going into something else, um, the commuter airlines and that sort of thing, and eventually ended up with the uh, Civil Aviation Authority, Civil Aviation Safety Authority in Australia, as an inspector. Uh, and that was very interesting because at the time, uh, GPS was um, uh, coming into uh, general use, uh, and, and particularly the uh, the use was uh, not a show, couldn't say particularly exclusively in the light aircraft field. So you had your Garmin's and uh, Trimble's and those sorts of panel mounted GPS's available in in light aircraft. And, and I'd done a lot of training uh, in in light aircraft with the early GPS units and. The, the early GPS approaches. So when I joined the uh, Civil Aviation Authority, I was very familiar with this kind of uh, work. And I got into a role where I was responsible for the standards and development of instrument approaches, checking out GPS approaches and all those sorts of things and worrying about the uh, the standards, etc. But about that time, the uh, jet airline fleet were also becoming equipped with uh, GPS, but um, there was no facilities in terms of regulation and training and otherwise for the um, 737s, the Airbuses, to um, to utilise what was being utilised in general aviation. And so I ended up having to um, develop regulations uh, to adapt what we had already drafted for small aircraft into the flight management system type 
aircraft 737s and so forth. And of course, that then led to um, working internationally. I did the same kind of work with ICAO, worked with FIA a lot. Uh, and I joined around about that time, I joined a, a, a new startup company in uh, Seattle uh, called Navarus. And they were designing what now, if, if I don't know if you, do you fly powered airplanes yourself? Uh, just when I was younger and not now. Yeah, well, these days now we have what we call RMP. You might have heard of that, Required Navigation Performance, which right. is a, a development of um, basic GPS approaches, um, quite sophisticated systems which allow you to fly into remote uh, areas. I was developing approaches into the Himalayas and, and places where the, the minimum safe altitude was 25,000 feet. So as soon as you descend, you're amongst the hills. Um, very sophisticated types of, um, of GPS-based approaches for the for the airlines, and I did that all around the world, uh, including the US, China, all through Asia. Of course, along this way, because of air traffic and other things, I, I didn't really do much gliding over that period. So I got out of the gliding, but did a lot of flying. And it wasn't until recent years that, um, when I retired, that the opportunity came back to go gliding. So as I said, I've I've been the full circle, so I started out gliding, towing, and now I'm gliding and towing again. Still keeps me interested, you know. One of the best things, really, after all of that experience, I flew everything. I had a US ATP, Australian ATP, I've got a 737 rating. I need everything from um, light sport aircraft, gliders, helicopters, up warbirds, used to fly a what you call a Texan, what the Brits call a Harvard, a Tiger Moths, right. all sorts. But after all of that, I think really gliding is probably the most interesting. I was just looking at the weather forecast for tomorrow, and um, although we suffer from uh, weather conditions down here in Tasmania, one of the big advantages potentially is that uh, tomorrow we will have a wave uh, right over the top of the airfield. Do you do you are you familiar with the, um, the weather program uh, SkySight? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, the SkySight's developed by an Australian lad Matthew Scudder from Kingaroy up in Queensland. Very yep, bright correct. lad, and we use that all the time. So SkySight's now predicting for tomorrow a wave directly over the field. In, in most, I don't know what it's like where you are, but in most places that I know where there's been wave, you have to go somewhere. You know. You, when I was at Kingaroy, we had to pick up about the third wave, climb up to about 10,000 feet, then poke into the wind and pick up the next one and the next one before you got to the primary wave and some height. But uh, here we've got a primary wave dead over the top of the airfield. The only problem there, though, is that it may, uh, the airspace limitation here without a transponder is um, 8,500 feet. And unlike perhaps other parts of the world, uh, we our aircraft aren't equipped with transponders. So I'm trying to negotiate a, uh, a block clearance here with the regulatory authority, but um, the bureaucracy is making that particularly difficult. But there is potential to go to 20,000 feet directly over our airfield. So are you going to attempt that? Oh, I've already attacked it. I haven't succeeded, but I've attacked it. I'm having difficulty because, uh, like many regulatory authorities around the world, and I've worked with a lot of them, they they suffer from a lack of expertise. So when you're talking to um, some of these organisations, it's hard to uh, get the message across because they generally don't understand. And I've got that problem here that uh, their knowledge of uh, systems, capabilities and their lack of um, modern standards and so forth make it difficult to communicate so before i can go too far in the future i'm going to have to try and find out some way of it's a bit like saying uh, look I, I know more than you do <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> and that doesn't go across too well but it's a fact uh, you know um, yeah I, I used to work for them and i i, I know um, a lot of uh, organisations, particularly in Asia, really struggle to find expert people these days. Anybody with some current good knowledge tends to be snapped up to other, other, other employers, airlines, and so forth. And um, if you take 
many countries you'll find that the inspectors are retired airline pilots. They, they get to 60, they have to retire, so they go and get a job with the authority and they sort of work out their retirement, so to speak, um, doing an inspector's job and um, not necessarily the, uh, the most um, innovative or best educated or active sort of people, unfortunately. That's worldwide. What would you be flying tomorrow? Yeah, well, I, I have a share with my with, with a friend in a glass flugel mosquito. Okay. 1977 model. You know the mosquito? It's a pretty nice aeroplane. It's still a very good aircraft. After all these years, you know, it's uh, well equipped. It's got uh, a good nav system, oxygen, and all that sort of stuff in it. But still, even though it's uh, it's a you know forty odd years old, it still performs well. And, and you can pick, you can buy those kind of glides. In fact, I noticed around the world that um, a lot of those older glides become more and more popular. Down here in Australia, they're running uh, competitions for what they call so like it's like a sports class. So you, you okay, have a yeah. you have a limited form things like Cirruses, um, Hornets, the Bells, a whole bunch of those kind of aircrafts. Generally, they're something like a the high thirty to one, thirty eight to forty to one sort of range of glide um, angles, typically fifteen meter wingspan, and they're becoming now a, a popular um, uh, competition class. You know? So there's there's quite a lot of researchers and interest in that class of, of glider. What's the glide ratio on the mosquito? Oh, it's the book figure is 42 to one. Okay, yeah. You know, and uh, but you know, you have, that would be the best you get. You have to be in the right center of gravity and a whole bunch of other things. But you know, it'll, it'll probably getting probably getting close to that. It certainly certainly flies very nicely. The clubber has uh, two two seaters, um, a single seater, horny tug, and a couple of other private aircraft. There's another. Mini Nimbus, which is very similar in style to the uh, Mosquito there. And uh, we built a new hangar this year, or last year rather. Now this is 2023, so we've got a second hangar. And we certainly are increasing our fleet uh, bit by bit. Now, if somebody wanted to come fly Tasmania, what would you suggest them to do? Well, they're always welcome. We had a chap the other day from Norway, only last weekend. Oh. He was a nice guy. Yeah, float plane pilot from New Norway. He came up and actually, despite the impression I might have given you, he did an hour and uh, an hour and twenty minutes soaring with good conditions there. So you know he had a really good flight. Uh, yeah, another, nice. another chap from Austria about, about a month ago came out and flew with us. The regulations, like many countries, are a bit limiting. We uh, unless you want to go through quite a bit of paperwork to get. Uh, solo privileges or pilot and command privileges uh, but generally we just make uh, visitors welcome and they, we find a safety pilot to fly with them and, um, and and away they go we treat them as though they're a guest member and charge them the same rates as our other members so they're always welcome it's, it's a nice area i mean it's a nice um, countryside it's quite pretty and the scenic and that sort of thing uh, I, I don't know uh, it's not like the Western Desert in the US, <laughs> flat and uh, open. It's quite uh, quite scenic. Uh, if you get up high enough, you can see the coast both sides. <laughs> oh, wow, nice. Yes. yes right. What's the distance from both sides? Oh, look, I, I, I'd have to measure it, but I'd say probably, I'd say we wouldn't get much more than 100 k's in any direction, generally. I, okay. I, I think. I yeah. think. And of course, uh, a lot of that is uh, not flyable. Yeah, actually, I'm just looking at the map of the state at the moment. Yes, uh, from from where we are to the water, 90 k's. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, not that far. And the other direction, about 150 kilometres. Yeah. If I drew a 100 150 kilometre circle, I'd cover most of the state. Well, yeah. But if anybody does want to come down to you, they're more than welcome. We'd look after them and uh, make them very welcome. All right, we'll put the uh, website in the show notes and any other contacts you have that would be helpful. Yeah, the website, there's plenty of contacts there. There's, there's a few videos on our website. Our, our, one of our members who looks after the website does a really good job, quite a good website and quite a few uh, videos there. But unfortunately, we're not going to do any 1,500-kilometer flights or anything outstanding uh, but we do the best we can with the circumstances 
and we're, we're, we're developing slowly and I'm hoping that we can increase our membership in the next few years. Uh, certainly we've recovered from a low point a few years ago where we had to move and the club had lost many members and was pretty small, but now we're sort of pretty healthy and uh, growing again. Hopefully uh, a lot more people now will know about Soaring Tasmania. Well, I hope so. Um, we're really trying to um, encourage people. But as I said, um, I don't know why it is. In my day, uh, you know, I couldn't wait to get an aeroplane. But um, uh, this, I think there's a lot of uh, competing activities these days. You know, so many different yeah, things. Yeah, unfortunately. And, uh, yep. and so it can be difficult to uh, recruit and, and retain retain members, which is unfortunate yeah. because really uh, gliding is... A, a terrific sport, and, uh, and for those who, who are willing to um, get into it and try it out, you know, we're, many of us have been doing virtually for a lifetime and still interested. You see, there's not many things you can do where uh, many years later you're still you still get a thrill out of uh, catching a good thermal or or whatever it may be. Exactly, and experience some things that others will never get to experience. Yes, and of course, there's the perception that glider pilots are somehow, somehow or other daredevils, quite wrongly. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, having done many thousands of hours of powered flying, um, powered flying can be pretty uh, uninteresting in, in many respects. Uh, as long as the engine keeps going, it's not, not the greatest yeah. challenge. Um, whereas yeah, yeah. Every, every day you go, go gliding, it's up to you to um, put it all together. Not just the flying, but the weather, the meteorology, the performance. Uh, yeah. So many facets to, to gliding that make it, that's what makes it interesting. Absolutely. Mind you, I always tell people when they join that it's a lot of work for a little bit of flying. Uh, <laughs> in gliding, you've got to warn people that, uh, that the effort required is a team sport. You've got to help your mates and all the rest of it. So you spend a lot of time uh, pushing, pulling, helping towing in, towing out, all that sort of stuff. And then occasionally you get to go for a fly. Uh, so it's not like you can rock up to the uh, to the flying school and pay your money and turn the key and go flying. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's also um, can be a lot of camaraderie, friendship and all those sorts of things that go along with it. Absolutely. Robert, we always like to talk about safety here on the podcast, one of the things we like to focus on. Would you have any safety tips for soaring? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. Um, if, if I go back through my um, flying career, apart from the fact that I had an accident, uh, and that's, that teaches you a lot, um, managed to um, have a pretty reasonably good safety record, including managing some, some operations. I remember that years ago when I was... Um, managing the, that uh, helicopter school, we were flying 10,000 hours, about 5,000 hours power, 5,000 hours helicopters out of an uncontrolled small airstrip without without uh, accidents. And my, my wow. view on, on safety and those sorts of things is pretty much uh, the idea of discipline. So, so, for example, in that operation, we were flying left-handed circuits for airplanes, uh, landing on the, on the bitumen, Right-hand circuits for helicopters landing on the grass, uh, non-towered airfield, and we managed a lot of busy operations uh, safely by basically good discipline. Now uh, I look in the, in the in the gliding fraternity, and I, I see variations in 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 attitudes. I, I am concerned that um, sometimes I think in gliding it can become very familiar. Because we've been doing it this way for a long, long time, uh, lose sight of the fact that safety can be improved. So, on, in that regard, at my current club, I've been working on a number of issues to try and uh, increase our level of general safety here in Australia when, and also in the states. Recently, there've been quite a few mid-airs. There was the the seventeen and the P-39, of course, that you all know about. Uh, you may have seen on the news a couple of helicopters crashed on the Gold Coast recently with some fatalities. There was a, uh, a light sport aircraft flew uh, near a Queensland lighting club and collided with the glider and the glider pilot and the light aircraft pilot were killed. So there's been a, quite a number of notable uh, collisions recently. So 
in recent months I've been working with our club into trying to identify some of the hazards that can be reduced or mitigated. Because we've been a very small club with low level of operation, some of these things can go unnoticed. But as we build up our operations and have more gliders in the air at the time, uh, there are things that we can do. And one of the things I'm working on at the moment is uh, just changing our circuit operations to avoid conflicts with where the tug goes and where the gliders arrive and those sorts of things. So uh, I'm conscious that there's a necessity to be aware of what the risks might be and also to do what you can to mitigate it. I'm afraid that uh, familiarity sometimes just means, oh, yes, that's okay. Uh, And we've been doing this for a lot of years, so... We haven't had any problems. I, I don't see it that way. The way I see it is that no matter how long you've been flying and what you've been doing, you're still going to be looking out for what can be done. And so we are working on that down where we are. The other thing we, we don't have down here, we've been isolated from the mainstream and, and we don't have flam. Are you using flam, I imagine, in the States? Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit, yes. In most clubs they do. But down here we've been sort of isolated. We're uh, a small operation and... Uh, my glider and, uh, and uh, other private gliders are flam equipped, but uh, I'm just working on at the moment trying to get our club fleet equipped with a which I might call a flam type of system. The actual flam units are quite expensive, and of course there's other things that are going on as well. In Australia, the government is subsidising the use of what they call EC electronic conspicuity devices, ADSB basically. Uh, I have an ADS-B in-out unit in my glider now so that uh, the ADS-B equipped aircraft is to fly through the uh, glider area. Uh, They'll see me. Uh, At the moment, unfortunately, getting me to see them at the moment is a little bit more electronics required, but we're working on that. And the government in Australia is uh, pursuing a, a program of subsidy to get as many aircraft equipped with these kind of devices. But unfortunately... These ADSB type uh, conspicuity devices aren't compatible with FLAM in Australia. They are in Europe and maybe the United States, but not in Australia. They're operating on different frequencies. That's a bit of, a, bit of an issue. So, so there are uh, there's work to be done there in terms of electronics, in terms of how we can better uh, make sure all aircraft can see all other aircraft. And it's not very clear at the moment, but we are working on 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 the problem. Uh, the other thing is that I. Well, it had a lot to do with safety one way or another. One of the uh, one of the jobs I had in my professional career was to do with GPS, and uh, uh, we were developing instrument approaches using GPS down into in below the terrain, down in the valleys, uh, where a failure of the GPS or the aircraft or the operating system or the crews uh, would be disastrous. In other words, you're flying down amongst the hills. So in those cases, you have to look at um, uh, the safety of the complete operation, not just the safety of, say, the GPS unit, but how the crews operate and all those sorts of things. So I've had a lot to do with uh, safety in a practical sense. Uh, what I do see and worries me is that there's a lot of academic safety. That is, you'll see lots of papers and great deal and depth about analysis of safety and so forth. In, in my day, back in the long distance past it came down to a thing called airmanship and, and I'm rather keen to try to uh, like uh, get out of the academic kind of safety and theory safety into more of the practical stuff and again going back to what I said before that the discipline you know if you look at your operation and you're disciplined about how you operate how you operate every day you, you have people doing the same things everybody understanding what's going on uh, so I'm very much into uh, what I might call the practical side of safety rather than the academic or theoretical side of, of safety. Well, thank you for sharing that. There's some good advice there. Well, I think, you know, everybody's going to be thinking about it all the time. Absolutely. It's very easy to say, oh, yeah, we're safe. I used to deal with uh, airlines and uh, I'd say, go on with my company, the American company I told you about. We go along with say, look, I've got a, a, a better system for you here. It's going to improve your safety. And the airline would say, well, we're safe. We haven't had a crash. You're only as safe as your, your next crash. 
but yeah. it is very hard, very hard, uh, certainly in the commercial world, to sell safety. You, you would think that it would be first thing, but no, it's not. No, no, we're safe. We, we haven't had a crash. Uh, and I think probably the same thing will apply in gliding. Yeah, we've been operating for 20 or 30 years and we haven't killed anybody recently, so we're safe. But you see, right. you're only as yeah. safe as your next accident, which could be the next flight. So um, I really think you yep. just have to be on the ball, uh, looking at uh, everything you do and saying, well, hang on, we've been doing that for a lot, a lot of years, but really we could do it another way and, and we could reduce our risk. That's the other thing. People don't seem to think about if you look into safety as a science, um, you know, there are things you can do. Firstly, remove the risk. If you can't remove the risk, you mitigate the risk. But, you know, uh, those sorts of things take a lot of education, a lot of persuasion, uh, a lot of uh, education. But anyway, we are working on that as best we can uh, down here. And the last thing I want to see is um, uh, in a situation where you've got to stand up in front of somebody and explain what you did or did not do to uh, reduce, uh, reduce the risk following uh, an unfortunate accident. I, I would not like to be in that position. No, absolutely not. But um, you know, it's been nice to talk to you. I mean, I did look through quite a few of your um, previous podcasts. And, of course, um, you know, the, the, the things that are interesting are people who are doing sort of amazing things and uh, so forth. We're, we're uh, at the other end of the spectrum. We're the people who introduce uh, others to gliding and uh, those sorts of things. And, and I guess we hope that uh, people who join us will go on to do share the same uh, experience, uh, encourage other people to join, continue the sport and so forth. But we're really much down at the at the grassroots ends, but you need that because that's the other thing. Uh, it's all very well to look at people who are doing 1,500-kilometre um, flights and high-altitude stuff and whatever it might be, but it all starts at the grassroots where somebody turns up on the field and says, oh, I'd, I'd like to try gliding. So... I think, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that uh, so many, uh, everybody who's out there achieving things have got to start somewhere. And so we do our bit to uh, to introduce people to gliding and do what we can in the circumstances we find ourselves. Well, Robert, thanks for sharing us what it's like down in Tasmania. Very interesting. And you guys keep doing what you're doing and send some people hopefully down your way so they can experience soaring. Tell them they'll always be welcome. We'll we look after them as best we can. Well, thanks for joining us. All right, Chuck, uh, it was very nice to talk. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Surrey Master here. Many pilots have, at least once in their lifetimes, saved the soaring flight by circling a thermal generated by a fire on the ground or by an industrial stack but some fail to center it due to its different dynamics from a normal thermal. Let's see why. The thermal itself is obviously generated by the heat of gases being released from its source. But since those gases are not simply composed by air or water vapor, but by particulate matter and smoke of different colors, they will change the dynamics of the rising air parcel and understanding where the updraft is located in relation to the wind can make the difference between climbing away or losing even more height. The smoke column generated by the fire is a great indication of atmospheric activity, whether it's calm or active, and of wind's strength and direction. Usually, this will rule the thermal direction. If the smoke is puffing and, and dissipating rapidly, this indicates a good lapse rate and the presence of turbulence. This will mark not only the presence of updrafts along the rising smoke trail, but also of another thermals in the vicinity. Turbulence makes centering smoke from forest fires burning debris a lot hotter because it will make the centering almost impossible and making you lose precious height with the downdrafts over that area. It won't rule out its use, but they must be carefully assessed. A uniform and well-defined smoke stream indicates that the atmospheric conditions are stable and the centering can be more easily performed. But whenever there is enough wind to tilt the smoke column, the updrafts generated by the hot gases will not 
be located in the smoke itself, but immediately above it. The smoke is composed by ash and particulate matter, so it's heavier. The air patch immediately above it is one that will be heated by the smoke and will rise at a sharper angle upwind. That's where to look for tumult. Always have in mind the breathing problem that smoke represents, which can lead to intoxication and impact your ability to fly. Your cockpit, no matter whether its ventilation is closed or not, will be contaminated by those gases, so anytime exposure to it, it's dangerous. You can find strong turbulence inside thermals as well, which can anticipate the stall speed and lead to spins when flying heavy, so no slow thermal inside it. The sailplane surfaces can also become contaminated with ash by thermaline fires, and this will affect your sailplane performance afterwards, so you need to closely assess the advantage of circling a thermal generated by a fire or not, because you'll be paying for the rest of the flight performance-wise. In my opinion, if you have other options at hand, choose them. Only leave fires as a last resort. I wish you all happy flying, guys. For more tips, follow me on Instagram at SuriMaster or check my website, surreemaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.